You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And welcome back. What a break it's been. What a summer it's been here in the UK. And Brett Goldstein got an Emmy just to round it all off nicely. Congratulations to Brett. Now, this is an episode that I've been sitting on for over a month. I recorded this at the beginning of the summer break and I wanted to wait until I had some in the can before we launched back into what I will archly call season two of the podcast. That isn't official. Don't bear that in mind. Although do bear in mind that in March next year, this podcast becomes 10 years old. And there is a possibility that I could sync it up so that that's episode 400. But equally, knowing me, I'm unlikely to bother. But my point is, I've been so giddy about this one because this is someone of whom I am such a genuine fan. And because we almost never have singer-songwriters on this show, this is me branching out. I don't know if this is this makes it a non-com pod rather than a com-com pod, but Jonathan Coulton is definitely comedy adjacent. He is a brilliant and funny and wise singer and writer and uh, song guy. My words fail me, and I hope they don't during the interview. I think I did okay, uh, given that I'm such a phenomenal fan of him and that I know nothing about music. Um, This is an unusual foray for me into the world of asking dense questions like, is there such a thing as catchiness? And could you try and do it deliberately? And just kind of hoping that my naivety and general experience of talking to comics would, would bear me out. Listen, He's just brilliant. You might know him if you're a computer game person and you've played the best game in the world, which is Portal, of course. Uh, He wrote Still Alive, which is the song that Gladys sings you at the end of Portal. Um, You might know him from... uh, Listen, if you don't know... I mean, he's he's got enough fans that he has a fan cruise every year and he's super into that kind of audience uh, generation and retention and cultivation and all of those things. I'm so excited by what he has to say about art and the fusion of art and business and hustle and all of those things. Um, and he's just wonderful. So we're going to talk about his Thing a Week project and how it how it propelled him from a software career to, to his position now, where he is just phenomenally creative and full-time online. We're going to talk about the pros and cons of aiming for viral success, and we're going to talk about why he secretly finds it hard to rock authentically. It is no exaggeration to say that two or three mornings a week I will listen to this guy in the shower, because when you make music that isn't funny, it has so much more longevity because there is nuance and richness and depth. And listen, I don't need to mansplain. I don't need to podsplain music to you. This is Jonathan Coulton. I think you are the first non-comedian that I've ever had on the show in something like 10 years. But you Uh, are 
you're well, now, now I'm offended, Stuart. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, no, this is the very special <laughs> position because you're... Uh, do you, what's, what is your relationship to comedy? You are funny, but you're not exclusively funny. You're not like a, a comedy singer-songwriter, but you've right. definitely got a relationship with comedy. Yeah, I, it's, it's a complicated one because I, you know, when I first started writing... I mean, I've always written a combination of sad songs and funny songs, you know, j- joke songs, yeah, uh, and then everything in between, and... When I was first trying to figure out how to turn this into a career, I was sort of back and forth between am I a am I a musician where I'm just playing songs and people listen to them and like them, or am I a comedian and I didn't, I'm making people laugh? And I did, um, you know, occasionally I would get invited to do a set as part of a comedy show, um, and those were always very strange because. Um, that's when I would realize I would get up to do one of my funny songs and I would realize, huh, this is a funny song, but it is not funny all the way through. It is not, it does not pass as a comedy song in the context of a comedy show. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, you think about somebody like, uh, uh, I don't know, like I think about Adam, Adam Sandler's songs are like, to take an example of a very obvious, like mostly comedian, only kind of musician. Um, no offense to Adam Sandler, but uh, <laughs> his songs are designed to be jokes all the way through. They're designed yes. to work as in the context of comedy. And it's I a don't... vehicle. It's a vehicle for for jokes, right? It's a vehicle for jokes. Yeah, and I I have some of that, but not so much. And I, you know, my my own preference of my work is to is that it has a it has a comedic element, but it takes a turn to somewhere else occasionally. That's yes. what I like. So was it, so did you, do you, and do you do those kind of lineup shows anymore? Do you still appear as kind of like, do you have a kind of comedy back pocket set with the funniest ones? Or is that something whereby, like, what, what's your, what's your feeling about that now? Do you feel like comfortable in that environment or do you prefer to just do your, your stuff? I do not feel that comfortable in that environment. I, and I, luckily I've stopped being invited to those kinds of things. <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, I do have... I mean, I have a few songs that I can go to when I'm feeling that vibe, when I need to when I need to present as more of a comedian than a musician. I do have a couple of songs that work that way. Okay. Um, but it's not it's not my preferred context. The uh, the one on the FAQ of your website is uh, Skull Crusher Mountain. That refers like will will you come and play my wedding? And the example <laughs> you give and that's that's a really that there's a real comedy parallel there with I should have that on my FAQ. Should I have one? Like <laughs> I would love to come and do your wedding, but my stuff will be about me and it will not be appropriate. <laughs> so I was fascinated to see your version of that. But it's interesting. I came to your music only a couple of years ago when I heard Skull Crusher Mountain. I think on Spotify on Random Shuffle or something. And uh, and I probably heard it a few times in the way that Spotify kind of presents you with a thing before mm-hmm. like heard it in the background before I went whoa 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 hang on what's what's, what's actually what's going on in this what's going on here and and as a result of that song which is uh, in in part at least about a mad scientist uh, ruining ponies and monkeys in order to present a gift to their loved one. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I, I then kind of went down and I'm wondering what the I so I asked this because I'm wondering whether 
this reflects a particular path to discover your work, as as far as you know. So I, I listened to that one. I went on your Spotify page. I was like, oh, re your brains. That sounds interesting. Bang. Oh, my God. Code monkey. Oh, my God. And at that point, I think I texted something like five friends and went, do you know this guy? Why haven't you told me about this guy? In that way that, you know, the excitement of like, I'm just becoming a fan of a new thing. And almost all of them texted me back and went, well, yeah, he's the guy that did the song from Portal. And then I was like, oh, right. So I've discovered you before. So that's kind of my journey as well as I think those saying that enough of those those kind of song titles will act as a, I'll introduce you properly in the blurb for the podcast. Sure, sure, but, sure. You know, there will be people listening to this who will probably be either experiencing that journey with me now um, or, you know, go, oh, right, a sense of, of, of who this person is. And it struck me that those are your... Certainly Spotify registers them as these are the most frequently downloaded ones. These are yeah. the hits as far as the algorithm is concerned. And they're all funny. They're right. all your funniest ones. So I then was like, whoa, funny songs. And then went, no, rich songs. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, well, that's very, I mean, that's very kind of you to say. And I, I, uh, I mean, that what you've described as a, a discovery journey, I think is relatively typical for people who have found me. Um, you know, I have a very uh, connect the dots kind of uh, career, I think, uh, which is to say that I've done a bunch of different things that have had, uh, you know, l- these little moments of success in various fields. So, yeah, the, the portal, the portal song is like a famous video game song. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are these joke songs like Skullcrusher Mountain and uh, the first of May and uh, yeah. uh, that that sort of appear in random shuffle and people find them. But I've, you know, I've also done some songs for uh, television shows. I also am a, a co-host on this uh, uh, NPR quiz show, and I do kind of song parody quizzes there. And so it's it frequently happens that people are like, "Oh, that's the same guy as that guy." Yeah, right. Because you've you've kind of had um, like viral successes, but in quite in like. Uh, cross genre <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah. like even even that even that first example of like oh that's a famous video game song and you could yeah. hear that what does think, that even is mean is that a genre <laughs> yeah, what even is that <laughs> yeah yeah it's true and and it's uh I mean I feel very blessed for that I mean I really love I I I have always loved the idea of like a career that's just you you get to kind of be yourself and do the things that you're interested in and do the stuff that is fun to you and I you know, I, it's like a dream. It's like a dream that that is my job is that I get to do all the, I get to try all of these different things, you know, and it works somehow. So to go back to the, the beginning, like kind of developmentally of your songs, what was, which of those songs that we've mentioned was the first that you, that you wrote? Uh, I mean, Skullcrusher Mountain was a, was a pretty early one. Um, uh, and that was written as part of, uh, I, I'm good friends with, uh, a guy named John Hodgman, uh, yeah. who's a actor, comedian, writer, um, and he and I went to college together. And he was the first of us to quit his day job. And when he quit his day job, he was like, "I'm going to become a freelance writer. I'm going to do a. I'm going to start hosting a variety show at this uh, this venue in Brooklyn." Um, and so he started doing that. And he was like, "I want you to come and do uh, write a song for each for each show that we do. There will be a theme. I want you to write a song to the theme." So I said, "Okay." And uh, many of the many of the sort of uh, really off the wall concepts, funny songs are are from that era, uh, because he would say, "All right, the theme is um, um, 
how to measure genius you know oh, and that's, that's and that was like and that, <laughs> and that was where i got uh, skull crusher mountain um okay. and uh what else what's another example of that um uh i, I have a song called i crush everything about a giant squid uh who is self-loathing and is really depressed <laughs> I suppose it's not that funny when you describe it that way, Uh, but it's uh, but that was one from you know the theme was something about animals. I have a song called Mandelbrot Set about a fractal, Uh, and that was uh, that was some other I can't I can't even remember what the theme was, but you know uh, these opportunities to sort of like write for write for write about a thing that I wouldn't have otherwise chosen to write about, and in the process of doing so, finding a thing that is funny or finding a thing that is sad or finding a thing that connects to me personally yes. in some some way that those those were very powerful uh 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 songwriting prompts those those shows that we did um so and and were you a were you a sort of functioning singer songwriter at that point were you like his mate that he said hey you can play the guitar why don't you write a song for this or were you I mean, already yeah i i was i when you say functioning it depends what you mean i mean I, <laughs> is there I, such a thing <laughs> i've been re- i mean i've been playing instruments and singing forever for as long as i can remember you know my 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 mom and dad are both both musical people not professionally but um you know there was a lot of singing and and playing of things uh when i was growing up and so um it was always a thing i did for fun and then you know at some point in probably junior high school you know this sort of uh, i can't remember how you, how you would describe it in uh in the uk what do you, what do you say for like the 6th we call it, we would call it sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade. Yeah, I've never understood because you can't describe it without using the terms which you're trying to explain. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I, I still be, don't know what you mean. Yeah, exactly. I've got an idea of what sixth grade is. I've no idea of the age attached, and I'm happy to kind of continue in my. So I'd ignorance. say in my in my in my early teens, in my, gotcha. when okay. I was uh, you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen. That's when I started started writing songs, and they were sometimes silly and mostly terrible but i was but i was writing all through all through uh school and then when i went on to uh to university i was i was writing there and so i had been writing for for many years and it was okay. it was my intent to become a professional songwriter musician but i at the time of writing those songs that i described with john hodgman i had not done that yet i was actually working okay. as a uh i think i was working as a software designer at that point i was writing software for a company Okay, and just to just to stay with that idea of you as a young, uh, as a teen singer songwriter, when you say they were terrible, that's a kind of <laughs> like that's a kind of fun offhand way to treat your teenage self. But like, what what was it? Do you think at that time, what were the traps that you were falling into? If there's a teenage singer songwriter listening to this, what uh, kind of things could you say to your younger self that could maybe help someone else out of the same traps? Yes, I mean, I I I think. It's the similar traps that many people fall into when they're first writing songs, especially when they are teenagers. Um, you know, as a teenager, you feel everything so acutely. And uh, these these concepts are so huge and, and important and, and uh, devastating and and thrilling. And, and so, uh, you know, I would say that my main complaint about my early work is that it was a little overwrought. It was a little pretentious. <laughs> it was a little too dramatic. Um, I had one song, it was kind of a breakup song that opened with the long, with the line, <laughs> please pardon my vicissitudes, wow. which is, I mean, it's a terrible, 
that's a terrible way to I'm, start a song. I'm 44. I don't think I know what vicissitudes are. But well, I can admit the problem. it. I, I think I read it. I think I, I was. It was some sort of vocabulary test that I was taking in in school, yes. and so I knew the word vicissitudes, and I was like, "That's a smart sounding word. I'll put that in a song." Which is like, "That's not. Yeah. Don't do that." And who were you um, listening to at the time as a as a teenager? Who were you trying to be a version of? If that was if that was what you were trying to do? Yeah, I mean, at that age, I had I had, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think my my favorites were, I mean, you know, Beatles. I I listened to a ton of Beatles as as a kid. Um, uh, at that age, I was really into uh, Billy Joel. Um, I was really into. Uh, Steely Dan, weirdly. Okay. Okay. My dad introduced me to Steely Dan, and I, I really like them a lot. Um, and, and then uh, uh, another big influence at that time was Loudon Wainwright III. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Who is perhaps heard the name. better known to many as Rufus Wainwright's dad. Oh, yeah, cool. Um, and he is a guy who, he's he's a, you know, acoustic guitarist, uh, mostly, and he writes songs that are that are uh, frequently goofball, funny, um, and strange, but also are can be uh, kind of brutal and and personal and and uh, and revealing. And um, so that was that was sort of the constellation of stuff that I was listening to, and and I think trying to emulate at that time. And and when it came to writing the songs with John Hodge or for John Hodgman to those kind of prompts, which I think is a really fun kind of like a creative prompt that's a really good system isn't it because presumably you've got a friend you want to impress your friend there's a deadline you want to do Mm -hmm. something imaginative all those things that's a that's a really fun way to get into it yeah and the examples you mentioned of of skull crusher mountain also a song about uh about the giant squid do you feel like because i i can hear i i think i don't know if i've heard the giant squid one was it i will crush everything you say like when you said everything i crush everything i've either i've heard it or it just sits so neatly within my idea of what one of your songs would be like or one of the themes of your songs like i've i sort of feel like i heard this the other day i was listening um again to uh the album which has uh nemesis on it oh yes is... that's artificial heart from artificial heart of course yes and um and you there's that lovely moment when you when you hear one of your songs which is like and it reminds me of um and it is kind of it's comedy parallel it's like um even if it's not funny, there's always a moment. I always think of it as a South Park moment. There's like what the episode of South Park purports to be about. Uh-huh. And then and then 10 minutes in or 12 minutes in normally you go, oh, oh, that's clever. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? In this context, the thing is a stand in for, you know, racism or the, you know, the, the, right, the, right. the frippery is a stand in for something, something deeper. And but listening to Nemesis in particular, I was like, "Oh, of course you would write a song about like a love song under the, or not even a love song exactly, but a sort of maybe a platonic love song under the guise of say that we'll be Nemesis, <laughs> say that we'll yes. be one another's arch enemy, because it yeah. fits within." And I couldn't quite pinpoint it, and maybe you can a sort of like fantasy culture, but or or whatever the kind of the Venn diagram of colossal squid. And arch nemesis. Do you know what I mean? Like that. <laughs> what, what? Like what is that? That's a thing. I don't know what it the is. name of that thing is, but it, it is, is. That's the territory, right? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you know. I don't want to be too. Uh, this is maybe too glib an answer, but I think what you're describing is nerd culture. Yeah. Um, and and it is. Uh, and that is a term that has become so difficult to use with any uh, clarity uh, or accuracy anymore. But. Um, 
you know, I mean, I, that's that's a thing that's that's in all of my music. You know, when I when I was growing up, I was interested in in science and and technology and computers and um and uh, so and you know, I had the same thing that everybody does in their teens, where they feel awkward with other humans and they sort of don't like how they look or how they move or how they smell, <laughs> and uh, and so that. Um, it's kind of like my psyche froze at that time of my life. And, and so I am still very in touch with that feeling of wanting something really badly and not being able to get it and not figuring out, not being able to figure out what you're doing wrong, not being able to figure out why you can't be satisfied with what you want. And that that is a thread that I think runs through all of my stuff, um, you know, the the giant squid song, which is a very sad song. The squid loves ships, just loves them and wants to be close to them. But he is a giant squid. And so when he gets close to them, he destroys them. He literally destroys the thing that, that he loves the most. And so he has banished himself to the bottom of the ocean. Um, and, uh, you know, the Skullcrusher Mountain guy he's trying to woo this lady that he he's a he's a mad scientist he's an evil genius he's a bad guy nobody likes him but he's fallen in love with this woman and he is doing his best to woo her and it's painful and pathetic to watch because he's a monster and she she clearly is terrified but he doesn't get why it's not working for him and and so that that to me feels very much like a teenage at least in my head and heart, that feels like a very teenage place to be, is wanting something really badly, feeling like you can't possibly get it, and not knowing why. And the way you describe that, it, there's a part of my psyche that froze kind of as a, as a teenager, as an adolescent. That seems like I really respond to that, like beautifully put, right? And I think <laughs> I think that's as good a description of any of kind of the origins of nerd culture. And yeah. like that that thing of particularly because you are able through your work through the ideas in, in these examples we're talking about the giant squid the mad the evil genius you're able to kind of talk about the the overwrought emotions that you might have been feeling as an adolescent but by you sort of take a distance from them and can talk about ludicrous fantasy genre things as a means of letting some of the overwroughtness out whilst leaving the emotion in that's a that's a very interesting point. I had never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I think my my earliest forays uh, into expressing that feeling in songwriting were very direct in saying, "This is how this is how I feel. I feel this way. Uh, this is what's wrong." And when you when you do that as a songwriter, it's never as interesting as taking a little distance from it. I, I think, um, and so. You know, when I started to, because, you know, of course, frequently when you're writing a, 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 a character in a song, it's you. It's got pieces of you in there. Or it's got pieces of people that you know or, or parts of relationships that you have with other people. It all sort of like, uh, it gets soaked in whether you want it to or not. And so, you know, I found that when I would write about my emotions directly, it would come across as this sort of hackneyed, overwrought um uh, thing, but then when I took a step back and said, "All right, here's a guy who is sad, who can't get what he wants, but he's a mad scientist. How does that feel?" Mm. And so there's a little ironic distance, and you're 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 able to 
you know, you see him struggling and it's presented in kind of a funny way. But I think uh, when when I do it well, I think you, you see it, you see him struggle. You 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 laugh at first. But the more you listen, the more you realize that he's really he really is struggling. And it is really a, a <laughs> it really is a hard thing for him. And he's very sad or he's very pathetic or the, the guy in Nemesis who wants desperately for this other person uh, to be his nemesis. But it's possible that that person doesn't even know who he is, yeah. I, and and that is a that is a very sad place to be. But it's also, I, I think, it presents as a very funny funny concept initially until you think about until you actually put yourself in that person's yeah. point of view, and then you then you feel you realize how crushingly sad it is. Yes, yes, and from the point of view of a, a listener, and I, I guess an audience on a mass level people can relate to those emotions whilst also laughing. You know, I can ex- excitedly text my friend Noel and say, hey, you've got to listen to Re Your Brains because you like zombies and you'll get this. Right. But I know that, but it's a, it's also like an envelope within which I can say, and you'll also really appreciate the song and like the, you know, the, the what I guess that song is about in some levels is the sort of the crushing mundanity of the cycle of meetings and... Absolutely. You know, that, yeah, that it's got of, that extra extra layer. So, and... And uh, you can approach it in either direction, and it, and it's yeah. you know the layer of like the the I would say the deeper level of it being a, a comment on corporate culture and yeah. jobs and bosses in general is is there for you, but that's not a that's not really hooky, right? As a as a concept, you that you have to that's a sort of slow burn that you have to take your time with in order to to get hooked by. But the idea of of a zombie trying to convince you to uh, open up the doors that's a very that's a very quick you know comedy comedy works that way comedy is is frequently a very quick it grabs you and it pulls you in you know how you're supposed to respond um and then if there's if in a, in the song there's a deeper uh layer that you can sort of savor and mm-hmm. dissolve slowly in your mouth that's a much more <laughs> that's an extra <laughs> bonus So this is Jonathan Coulton, and there are 20 minutes or so, 22 minutes or something of extra content with this interview available exclusively to the Insiders Club. Uh, we're going to discover Jonathan's manifesto on art and commerce. We're going to discuss the book Free Culture by Lawrence Lessig. Uh, we're going to talk about how many fans you need to sell enough tickets to make a cruise happen uh, and find out what moderation is necessary to keep the space safe for risk. Go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for that and much more. All the recent exclusive insider Zooms with Nish Kumar, James Acaster, Fern Brady and the incredible self-help for comedians special with Amanda Donnett. Now, uh, if you are not yet on the mailing list, you should also be joining the mailing list, which you could do at stuartgoldsmith.com or comedianscomedian.com and you will get a link to the video of the... That's exclusive. That's not even Insider's thing. That's purely for everyone who's on the mailing list. Uh, you will get a link to the video of the recent uh, James... A recent couple of months ago now, uh, beginning of the year, four months ago, something like that, the uh, James Acaster Zoom Q&A, which is great fun to watch and experience. That's all of the the plugging. You've got to find out what Jonathan Coulton's up to, which you can do at jonathancoulton.com. And you can also follow him on various social media, I'm sure, but jonathancoulton.com or just put his name in YouTube and just just bask in all of the stuff he has out there. I'm such a fan and I'm thrilled to be speaking to him. So let's get back to joking. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
so so let's talk about that you you were a software developer and you is that when you embarked upon a thing a week because i love the idea of a thing a week that was a challenge you set yourself to to create i mean i guess a song it doesn't it, thing doesn't really specify <laughs> but um to yeah, make song. a song I, I i let myself off the hook early with the, yeah, with the word yeah, thing because yeah, i wasn't sure they were all going to be songs Yes. And, a, a, you know, yeah. again, so that a was, really uh, useful creative system, right? That you go, I'm going to publicly commit to a thing and then I'll have to do it. And that's like yeah. a, a really healthy way to make art efficiently. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, that was some journey. I I, uh, I mean, the thing, you know, I, I got the software job uh, somewhere in my 20s when I was kind of tired of tired of not being able to tell people at parties, what I did for a living. Everybody else that I knew was like, oh, I am a lawyer. I am a doctor. I am a whatever. And I was like, I am a works at a coffee place. (laughs) It was ultimately unsatisfying the older I got. And so I ended up getting this job at the software company uh, and learning, learning a lot about software on the job as I went. But I was, I was writing code and it was fun and interesting. And I was accidentally there for almost 10 years. Um, and in nineteen, uh, sorry, in two thousand and five, uh, my daughter was born, and I was home from work for you know three weeks of parental leave, uh, which is uh, all we get in America, all we got yeah. in America in those days. And um, I, uh, I was like, huh, I don't think I could go back to this job, um, and it was a combination of. <clears throat> It was many things. It was, uh, you know, she was born and <clears throat> I immediately became more aware of my own mortality, right? I mean, that's the thing that happens. You're like, yeah, okay, yeah. my dad just became a grandfather. I just became a father. My grandfather's dead. I see where this is going. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and so uh, there was that because I had, I had this uh, lingering feeling like I really want to be a musician and I don't know how to do it. Um, and... There was also an element of, well, here's this person that is going to look to me uh, for how to behave and how to how to approach your life. And what, what do I want to teach her? And what do I want to show her? And the idea of being a guy who was sad at his job and who had always wanted to do something else and didn't do it felt like really not the right thing to, to present to her. So, um, so that's when I formulated this plan uh, that I was going to right after the birth of my child, that I was going to quit my perfectly good uh, software career and spend a year um, basically pretending that my job was to be a songwriter. And uh, one of the ways of doing that is to say, all right, I'm going to write a song. All right, hotshot, you want to write a song? You have to write a song every week for a year. It's literally your job. Nobody's paying you to do it, but you have to get up and do it. Uh, So that's, that's how it started. It must like I feel my assumption from the outside is that that's uh, that basically worked to a to an incredible degree. <laughs> like it it got you up and running. You created loads of stuff, and I suppose with I suppose some people, if, if people are listening to this, thinking, okay, ten years into a software job, and like you have a child, that's a terrible time to quit. God knows how your partner felt if you were sort of uh, still together at the time. You need support from them and everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or whether that ended that relationship. By no, 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 no. My wife know. was very supportive, very supportive. <laughs> but you could imagine people listening to that and thinking, I could never do that. Or mm. or thinking, 
I could I could see myself doing that, noodling around for two months max, and then back to my job with my tail between my legs. Whereas you managed to make it work. So how much of that managing to make it work was like what are the elements that came into that? The discipline, the idea of the you know, the the fifty two the commitment to fifty two things. What other things were there that meant that you pushed through when maybe other people trying something similar would have fallen by the wayside? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, an enormous amount of luck. I mean, I know this is a boring answer, but I just have to acknowledge, like, I, I, you know, I think at the time when when it started to work, I was like, why doesn't everybody do this? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I was because I was blogging, I was blogging the whole time, and I was writing about my process and my feelings and and sort of reporting on little successes that I would have, and and. uh, and my tone at the time was like, man, this is the future. Everybody, you should just quit your jobs and do this. It's great. And I don't think I realized at the time how how lucky I was. I, you know, a few things just aligned, which is um, just turned out to be very fortunate to me that I, I was, it was the very beginning of um, uh, people's comfort with, with buying uh, digital things on the internet. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there wasn't really a, a, a digital music store. Uh, podcasts were just starting. Um, the self-publishing uh, became a thing. Uh, uh, it was also lucky that I was writing about all these nerdy things that I had a comedic element because there were several hooks that people could attach themselves to. Um, it was lucky that I embraced uh, uh, the idea that people could pass the songs around for free without getting arrested uh, that was a relatively new concept at the time and i think really helped um so it was just this confluence of things that led to some early successes that really kept me going um so i think it was week uh week four i want to say week four or five when i did a cover of sir mix baby got back i did a uh a slow sad folky cover of Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back, which is now, which is now a trite, which was even then a kind of trite, <laughs> <laughs> comedic, easy, low-hanging fruit concept. But um, it, you know, it went crazy. And I, my web stats went bananas. <laughs> that was bananas. week four. That yeah, was, it was week I can't four. believe that was week four. <laughs> I know. If that, if, that, if that had been week 15, I'm not sure that I would have gotten yeah. to it, you know. But having that, and of course it was internet, it was like viral internet fame. So it it happened overnight. I earned no money from it. And then it went away. So it was this yeah. like <laughs> this tantalizing flash of success. Um, but it definitely was like, all right, if I did that once, maybe I can do it again. And if I can do it a few times, the, something happens and I make money. Okay. Okay. So did you then become... Uh... I don't know what the word is, intentional or shrewd or crafty about making things that you thought would uh, have more uh, more chance of becoming viral. Like, did the game then change from, oh, it, maybe, the, maybe the name of this game isn't speak from my heart at this stage. Maybe the name of the game mm. is build an audience. Yeah, it went back and forth. I definitely was leaning on the viral aspect on the on the internet musician aspect on um, the idea that I was this independent guy uh, f- forging this bold new path 
in the music industry. That was part of that was part of the story too that I was living and and creating at the same time. And and um and yeah, I definitely the songwriting there were weeks I mean, I should say, I should say it this this uh exercise in creativity did not cure me of <laughs> of finding it hard to be creative. Uh I still okay. struggle the same way that I did before doing thing a week in starting yeah. something and finishing something. It didn't make it any easier. That's, okay. that's the okay. bad Thank news. God. <laughs> my, no, I speak for every artist when I say good. No, it, good. Yeah, it's, it's like, I'm glad. Um, uh, and, uh, but so there were some weeks where I would have an idea that I thought was funny uh, and that was going to be a big viral thing and I would write about it and I would kind of be like, eh. Nobody cares. <laughs> and then okay. there are other weeks. There are other weeks where I would I would get to you know th- Thursday and not have any ideas except for this really stupid idea that I hated. But it was like, well, I gotta finish. I gotta finish this one because I don't have anything else. And I would do that. And sometimes that would people would really respond to. Um, and I, I mean, I guess the short answer is like I tried to be shrewd, but I don't feel like I ever once got it right. Um, okay. I was always surprised by the response to things. It, it it was always not what I, with few exceptions, it was mostly not what I expected when I put it out. Okay, okay. Which was a good lesson because it's like, all you could do is make the thing. You know, you can't control, you can't control how people respond to it or where it goes or where it ends up or how successful it is. It's, your job is to make the thing and publish the thing. And then you kind of have to walk away, you know? Could you give us an example of a, a, a thing a week creation that you had the highest hopes for that that then amounted to nothing? Uh, like what's your, what's your kind of the biggest kind of regret of like oh this was my baby and this was going to be the one? <laughs> uh, let's see. So the biggest biggest swing and miss. <laughs> I, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a much better phrasing. <laughs> I mean, I think. Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think I think the 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 first one that occurs to me is uh, is a song called uh, "Curl," which I wrote about uh, uh, curling. Do you know what curling is? Do you know the sport? Yeah, curling? yeah, I know what curling is. I've been okay. curling. Yeah. Oh, fun. have you really? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've never done it myself, but I I think the Olympics were happening, and it was very much like, all right, curling curling is kind of a ridiculous looking sport. I mean, it's one of those sports that's like, I'm sure it's very fun to do, but I think the professional curlers are also people who spend a lot of time in bars drinking beer and curling because that's <laughs> that's where you curl. So it's like, it's this, it's a kind of a weird sport to have in the Olympics and it's a little goofy. What if I write a song that takes it really seriously? And, you know, I, I, I think, uh, it didn't, uh, it didn't light up the, uh, the viral, uh, airwaves the way I thought it was gonna. Okay. And, and I think in part because it wasn't, I mean that song is is okay, but it's not. It's a little too. It's a little too contrived. I mean, okay. by my standards now, looking back, I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. I see what I was trying to do, and the fact that I can see exactly what I was trying to do tells me that it wasn't. Mm, it wasn't as organic as it could have been, and so it didn't really sing and sail the way it, it could otherwise have. That that is a really fascinating perspective. The fact that you can look back on it now and see what you were trying to do. 
yeah. means that you can it was a contrivance somehow is that is that yes. what it means i've kind of added that but that's yeah kind of... no that's that's exactly right it was a contrivance uh it was a contrivance and it was it was very calculated it was very calculated to try to have a certain effect yes. um i wrote the song you know i designed the song more than i wrote the song yes oh that's brilliantly put yes <laughs> yes because you and if you try yeah 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 big and and i suppose the idea being that if there is ambiguity if you allow that nowadays you allow there to be ambiguity and that's part of the hook rather than designing a hook designing a song rather than writing a song is fascinating yeah i mean it depends on what you're trying to do i mean i think frequently you know that's it's fine to i mean there's nothing wrong with designing a song i mean there are many people who do design songs and they do them do it very well and they're very successful but uh you know my skills don't lie in that direction i think my skills are more about uh you know accidentally stumbling upon uh things that are you know surprisingly moving or or surprisingly personal or that's that's when i think i am at my best and and in order to set myself up for that kind of thing to happen i need to approach a song with a certain uh open open mindedness and a and a certain yes uh, uh, you know, curiosity as to where it's going rather yes. than saying like, I know what I'm going to create. Yes, absolutely. And there's, so there's another, for, for me, there's a big parallel there with, with uh, comedy, with writing stand up. I mean, I'm, that's stand up comedy is the comedy that I write. I don't really make sketches or, or sitcom or anything like yeah. that. And, um, but for me, it's kind of, and I, and I think this is probably true of a lot of, but certainly not all comics. It's kind of, you start with an attitude, you start with an idea that has an attitude and then you kind of find a premise which is a language through circumstances through which to express that attitude and then and then you end up with a joke and then you tailor the joke so that it's as deft as possible but the bedrock is kind of the idea and the attitude and and so i kind of wanted to one of the but one of the big questions i have if i think of something like still alive the the portal song mm-hmm. um, and there's i've got a listener question more specifically about the brief for that which we'll, we'll get to um but the moment in that song, um, and I wrote it down. Oh, it's it. I think. And now, listen. My musical knowledge is my terminology is not great. I I believe it's a key change. The yes. uh, <laughs> the, uh-huh. the bit of the line on the people who are still alive, like you know, yeah. I, and I've, I've murdered it there. I'm sure. But that moment is so hooky and grabbed me so hard the first time I heard that song <laughs> that I wondered what I wanted to ask you was whether when you wrote that specific bit, that kind of finesse whether that was like an early part of the plan for that song or whether, like, I don't know whether to sort of picture you rubbing your hands with glee when you write that bit going, God, that'll get them. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, is that, what does it feel like to write that bit? It reminded me, it's so hooky and it's so robotic. It's kind of like, um, I mean, that whole song is so, it's like, uh, it, it, for me, when I heard um, Square Pusher, do you know the Square Pusher's oh, yeah, Robots yeah, yeah. album? So he's yeah. written, for those who don't know it, he's, he's written an album which cannot be played by human hand. And he built robots with like nine fingers in order to play yeah. this thing. And it, it is so kind of, it just feels inherently robot-y and kind of inherently sci-fi. So I, I suppose there's two questions. One is about the tone of that song. And one is about whether when whether you notice or stumble upon or you know your feelings about those moments do you have a moment when you go oh oh no that's gonna work like what yeah absolutely and i think it's a it's a two there are two prongs uh that you're moving forward at various speeds when you're when i, I should say not you me this is how i do it <laughs> when i'm writing there are two ways forward one is uh 
uh, discovery. One is sort of wandering in the wilderness and finding a thing and plucking it and using it. Um, uh, and the other is a more calculated, like, here is a trick that I know. I'm going to try this trick here. And I, I am honestly not sure that key change that you're talking about is a modulation uh, of, a, of, a, of a third. Uh, and it is a sort of classic pop uh, modulation that happens and you don't even really notice uh, that it's happening, but um, uh, it's 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 done. It's done. It's done frequently, and it has that okay. feeling of like, oh wow, what is that? And, okay. Uh, you know, I am I am a I am a student of music theory. I like to think about these things, and I like to hear a piece of music and understand how it works on me and why it's doing what it's doing so that I can then use it later. And so the idea of modulating by a third is a thing that I had sort of explored that I would hear a song, do that and say, Whoa, now what is that? And then go to the guitar and sit okay. down and figure it out and say, Oh, I see what's happening. They're, they're using this chord as a pivot and then it goes over here and then it comes back. And, and so uh, it's, it's entirely possible that as, as I was writing that song, I, my guess is that I started with the verse, which is a very simple, uh, simple pattern. I was like, well, this is a little simple. I want to make it more interesting. So what's, let me reach into my bag of tricks. How about a minor third modulation? Okay, let's try that. Okay. And then, and then if that works, then you go with it. Or, or uh, other times I, you know, I'll just be sort of noodling, noodling around and singing what I have so far and playing what I have so far and try something random. I mean, this is great on the piano because I don't play piano very well. So I, I just make shapes and I say, well, what? that sounds good. What's that? And I can figure it out after the fact, but I never would have chosen to go there in a calculated way. It's just a thing that I sort of discovered that sounded cool, and I liked it, and I wanted to use it. So it's it's two it's two things, really. Thank you. That is such a great answer. And okay. I love, I mean, I, I really bemoan the fact that, I mean, I'm sure there are parallels with stand-up, but I wish I could kind of apply a shape to stand-up. Probably I do on some level that I'm not thinking about, but that, that having the extra, like it, it does, doesn't occur to me as a non-musical person that you might go, oh no, the answer is rooted in musical theory. I understand what <laughs> modulating a minor third means. And it makes me think there'll be people listening to me asking that question when the podcast goes out. <laughs> Muso's going, oh, for Christ's sake, Goldsmith just discovered modulating a minor third. <laughs> you know, right. but, but to me, but it is also, it's like, it's about the application of the technique and the timing of the technique and the, right. and the fact that it sits so beautifully with the voice as well. So just to, just to stay with um, Still Alive, because like that game, Portal, and I'm not, I, you know, I play computer games here and there, but I'm, I don't consider myself a gamer, whatever that is. Yeah. But I do recognize, I've played enough games to go, oh, Portal is one of the standout, most incredible, because it, it's, it, it's like the, the very function of the game. You don't run around and, well, you do run around and jump, but it's not, yeah. you know, it's not about running around and jumping. It's like a paradigm shift. It's a conceptual paradigm shift. You have a gun which shoots doors. And mm -hmm. like, if that doesn't leave you gibbering on the floor going, oh, what? Like, what a game. <laughs> so did you know, like, how much did you know about it when you wrote that song, which really sums up the sense of humor of the game and the oddness and the alienness of the game? I mean, quite a bit. I, I uh, That song happened, I was playing a show in, in Seattle. This is early on in my in my career as an actual professional musician and i was doing a show in seattle and somebody came up to me afterwards and said hey i work for valve the company that made portal uh, i work for valve and would you ever want to write music for video games and i said sure 
uh, let's talk. And so at some point later, they flew me out there and I um, sat down with the team. And that's when I learned that the uh, woman who had approached me was the uh, lead uh, design, the the head designer on this game Portal, which I had seen online. I had seen a little like teaser trailer uh, for Portal. Uh, and I was very excited about that game mechanic of the of the shooting, as you said, shooting doors into walls and going through them. Um, and, uh, so I was really excited. And so I sat down and played through a sort of early version, early unfinished version of the game. Um, and, uh, uh, they sort of watched, they made me a little play tester. They watched, they watched me play it and, you know, made notes about stuff. And, and then, uh, afterwards I met with the writer of that game, uh, the main writer of that game who was, who I think that the character GLaDOS, which is this um, passive aggressive <laughs> artificial intelligence that speaks to you and taunts you and tries to kill you ultimately, but also kind of loves you. Sort of cares for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and so, and so that voice was already in the game and he had a very clear idea of who that character was, which I think comes out in the, in the dialogue that she that she speaks throughout, it's a very complex, multi-layered character, and I felt like I knew that character immediately, um, because I think it it dovetailed so nicely with my tendency to want to write about misunderstood monsters and about to write about somebody who wants a thing very desperately but doesn't know how to get it and can't even really admit to themselves that they're in that situation. That is for me, one of the most poignant personal points of view. Um, so it was not hard for me to channel that character once I'd had, once I played the game and once I'd had a few conversations with that, with that writer. Thank you. That is, I mean, you were so unquestionably the right dude for the job. I love the idea of this person seeking you out and going, excuse me, sir, your uh, psyche appears frozen in your adolescence. <laughs> Can we have a conversation? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was, I mean, it was a really lucky confluence of things. It was just my sensibility was sort of perfectly matched to to what they were already doing. So yeah, that, that very, very proud of that song. And yeah, that's a great, great game. And what a lucky thing to be involved with that. While we were we were talking previously about the um the what I'm still thinking of as the kind of the rubbing your hands together with glee moment that you know <laughs> in the writing process that the, this will either the, not so much this will get them but kind of that's the oh I've nailed it that's the thing like I'll have the same thing if I write a joke and I'll go uh, and for me it happens quite rarely I'm quite a sort of free falling improvising comedian but every so often I will really sculpt something and go oh yes that's what I mean yeah the song Code Monkey is mm. banned in our house because it is too catchy right and if we if i play it my wife will she has insomnia and it'll be code monkey all night for her right which i, I mean i love the song but i can't play it out loud anymore we've we've grown to understand that. i understand i understand i can play it in the car with my son that's fine <laughs> that's okay so talk to me about catchiness and what that means if that is a thing if that is a quality it's almost like discovering you know umami the you know the the flavor of flavorfulness like is that is there a is there a music term, like a music maker's terminology for catchiness and can you pursue it or again do you just discover it you stumble yeah it? I, I think it's a it's a absolutely catchy I mean I that's how I think of it too catchiness or hookiness um, it's a 
it is a, uh, I mean, it's an elusive concept. If everybody knew how to manufacture it, they would do it all the time, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so it is a bit of a thing that needs to be discovered, but uh, there are also tricks that you can use to, to get yourself close, to give yourself a fighting chance. Okay. Um, uh, I think it was, uh, uh, who, is it Rivers Cuomo? Um who has a uh, who ha- Weezer? The Weezer is that the Weezer guy? It is right. Rivers I don't Cuomo, know. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think he he famously uh, this may be apocryphal, but supposedly he has a notebook in which he writes down uh, sort of uh, musical th- music theory, pop music theory tricks okay. that he keeps keeps access to, so that he can sort of. And that's, I mean, that's sort of what it is. It's like there's there are some tricks that you can draw on, and sometimes they work well together, and sometimes they don't. I mean, finding a thing that is catchy is like when you, as a songwriter, when I find it, I know it's catchy because I can't stop singing singing it. I mean, it, it works on me the same way, and that's how I know that I have found it. Okay. Um, and it is it is not. I, I mean, at least for me, it's not easy to manufacture. It's much more of a like accidental discovery thing for me i know there are people that i think are much more adept at like just dial just dialing it up and making it happen but i i'm i'm not quite there myself um if you if you have as i and this this might be an assumption i think an assumption i think i'm inferring from your answer that your uh your toolkit for that is closely guarded and secret so i do do you think yeah i mean you know if that's like no i mean i wouldn't say i wouldn't say it's secret i uh, it's it's hiding in plain sight. I mean, it's the same it's the same toolkit that everybody has. And and part of the trick, I think, is that uh, you know all art is based on other art, <laughs> and uh, and in particular, pop music and catchy pop music is. I mean, it's catchy because it it uh, it's. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's catchy because you've heard it before. It's catchy because it yeah. reminds you of something. Uh, because it's because it sounds like it knows exactly how it's supposed to go, um, and that's because it's tapping into something in your synapses that you recognize that you already know. If I wrote, I mean, it would be impossible. Well, no, it's not impossible. I mean, you think about it this way: like in music, twelve tone theory was this idea that we are all uh, we are all slaves to musical theory. And we and we decide ahead of time. Oh, this chord is important, and this chord is important in the context of this chord, and that limits our possibilities. But what if every note was equally important? What if every one of the twelve notes was equally important? And so the rule, the only rule in this music is you have to use each note at least once before you can use it again. And twelve tone music is unlistenable. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> It is not unlistenable. That's not true. People listen to it and enjoy it. There's some of it that I like too. But it is not catchy in any way. It's never going to be catchy because it's new every time. It's it's surprising you way too much. Catchiness is a thing that has to walk that line between surprising but also familiar. So even that even that turn that happens in Still Alive, that modulation and the way the 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 uh, the vocal line goes. It's surprising in the moment, but it is also not so new that you haven't heard it before. And I don't have it at my fingertips, but I could give you a list of 10 songs that do exactly the same thing. And when you listen to them, you'd be like, oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is again. 
And so that, that I think is, at least in the context of pop music and catchiness in pop music, that's what it is. It's like, it's this line between something that is familiar and known to you and something that feels new and fresh and exciting. This is so the the secret of comedy, as I understand it from my research and personal experience, is to create something which is surprising yet satisfying, and that's yes. why it's so incredibly difficult. Because how can something surprise you? Uh, you know, how can it be both? But it has yeah. to be both, and that's when bang, that's the genius kind of. It's moment. a paradox, yeah. And I'm sure that you know, from a comedy perspective, you must have those moments where where you're you you're you're doing a, a comedy bit, a series of jokes, a joke, and you know where it's going. You know where it's leading, and you're leading the audience there. You know what they're going to get hit with, and so do they. Like, right before it hits, they know where it's going too. But when it hits them, they are still 100% with you and thrilled and excited. I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's the feeling of a punchline, and that is, I think, uh, the closest equivalent to uh, a hooky uh, or catchy moment in music is a, is a punchline. You know it's coming uh, and yet it's still sort of like connects two things at the last moment that are uh, exciting when they connect. Who or what do you see and think, I wish I'd done that? Like whether it's a side, like, like what I would ask a comedian is, whose who's joke do, do you wish, like which bit do you wish you'd got to first? Which bit do you see and think, I had half that idea and I didn't do it and they got there? Or, or whatever the equivalent moment is. Uh... Boy, that's a good question. I mean, there are so many things, you know. I mean, I think that happens all the time. It's very hard to it's sometimes very hard to uh see a thing that is great and not immediately feel angry and jealous. And I I, I mean <laughs> the way my brain works, like that's how I know that somebody that's how I know that I really like somebody's work is when they do a thing and I'm like, Ugh! Yeah. <laughs> it makes yeah. me so mad. Um and I feel that way about many uh many songwriters i mean recently the most recent thing is bo burnham's uh inside um mm -hmm. which uh has been very i know controversial in terms of like is it really a comedy special i don't care i watched it <laughs> and i was uh i loved it i thought it was a, a brilliant um way of expressing this idea of what it feels like to try to be creative on a regular basis um you know coupled with a, a very personal um examination of his own anxieties and uh touching on his relationship to this internet fame which is very weird i mean especially coming up in the as a youtube star i mean i think that's a that's a real mental health challenge to have mm -hmm. your uh to have your persona and professional life so intertwined i mean you're literally like you're getting paid depending on how many people like you I mean, it's like there's not there's not a, a better recipe for mental health disaster. I don't know what it is. So anyway, so all of that stuff was wrapped up in it. I thought the songs were very funny. I just like the the sheer amount of creativity, and of course the fact that it happened during a pandemic. I'm like, why didn't I do something with my pandemic instead of grow this dumb beard? Uh, the answer is infinite resources, no children. <laughs> Well, yes, that, <laughs> of course. I mean, of course, there's also that thing. That if he's he's very wealthy. He has a second house that he uses as has his pretend hidey hole, yeah, and where he makes all of his stuff, and he has no kids. Yeah, no, I know, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's built into it. But even all of that stuff aside, all of that because I have that bitterness too. I'm like, oh, sure. I, obviously, I could have done this if I had. Yeah. But still, I think if it's a 
I really loved it, and I was uh, I was very jealous that I hadn't hadn't thought of it first. <laughs> um, what is and this will this will sound tonally similar, and I don't think it's it's a it's a provocative question to get a uh, to get a, a particular type of answer. What do you consider artistically forever out of your reach? What is the thing that you can't do with music that you keep trying to do and you can never quite do? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I, hmm. <laughs> it, I find it very hard. I find it very hard to rock authentically. <laughs> uh, there, you know, there are bands, there are bands and musicians that are just like, they're just rock and roll. They're just cool. I don't even mean the style of music. I just mean like they get up there and they're just uh, they're just cool and awesome and dangerous and they mean it and they can carry it off. And I just I just don't I just don't have it in me. I for for many years I tried I tried to when I would record my voice I would try to sort of like make it sound a little rougher and like sort of slur my words a little bit and be a little less careful with my tuning and stuff like that. But it's just not me. And I finally had to admit, like, I just, I just have a sweet, sweet, sweet voice and I, it's soft and I, I should just lean into that. Um, but I always, I mean, that's the, the, you know, the idea of, uh, of being this kind of rock God who is very stylish, uh, and, uh, can just step out there and hold the guitar in the proper way that looks cool is, forever elusive to me the example i always think of is uh, john darnell from the mountain goats who yeah. rocks a hundred percent in a tweed jacket with elbow patches because he's a hundred percent himself so i put yeah. it to you jonathan colton that you do actually rock because you're being yourself on stage <laughs> very very kind of you to say thank you <laughs> that is authentic that is authentic <laughs> rocking i suppose a soft a soft uh, kind of rocking I'm a 44-year-old white guy from Leamington Spa in the Midlands uh, of the UK, <laughs> and uh, I will now rubber stamp you as being authentically rocking. Um, okay, thank you. Uh, last question. Kind of a, a question within a question. First thing is, are you happy? <laughs> well, wait a minute. I didn't know it was going to be this kind of interview. Um, yeah, I am happy. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, I'll give you an honest answer, which is that I'm 50, and... Uh, I got to about age 35 before I realized that uh, I had some unaddressed issues in my life. Um, the, the 30s were a rough decade. Uh, getting older, feeling like I wasn't uh, wasn't living up to certain expectations, I, whatever it was. Um, and so... Uh, you know, the older I get, the more in touch I am with the side of me that is that is that is not automatically happy at all times, which is how I thought I was until I was about 35. I just thought I was just a happy, easygoing person and that nothing bothered me. It turns out that was not true. <laughs> there were things that were bothering me that whole time that I never addressed. Um, so, uh, you know, I would say that happiness is a project and a practice more than it is a state of mind and a state of being and at least in my experience if you are automatically happy there's something that you haven't quite discovered yet because i don't think that happens to everybody and i think that um 
you know, I, I went to therapy for, for for a few years and that was very helpful. And, you know, I have a number of friends uh, my age who are, who have, uh, you know, you get to a certain age and you all have the same struggles. Um, and the more I have uh, accepted my own vulnerability and, uh, and need to sort of work on being a happy person, uh, the, the, the more often I can get to a state of, of feeling, I mean, I guess I would say that the goal is to feel, uh, satisfied more than the goal is to feel happy. And I hope that doesn't come across as a depressing statement, but I think feeling happy all the time is not possible and also not advisable. Um, and that what you should strive for is a, is a kind of, uh, the kind of self-knowledge and uh, self-care, bag of self-care tools that allows you to work through uh, the various challenges that you will no doubt face in your life. It's hard for everybody to be alive, and you got to work on it. So that's a, that's a very complicated answer. Let me just say, yes, very happy. I loved it. That was such a good answer. That was such a good answer. Thank you. I was going to, I mean, I would, I'm tempted, I'm tempted to leave it there, but my very last one, I, okay. Yeah. I keep, I'm, I, how are you for time? Have you got, have you got five I'm more fi- minutes? I'm fine. I'm okay. Fine, yeah. Awesome. Um, as I, so my last thing is how do you cope? I want to know how you cope with <laughs> when, you know, writer's block with the tougher things when you're grinding out an idea and, yeah. and that, and then on my very last thing is I can't believe I haven't spoken. I'm a huge lifelong They Might Be Giants fan. And you've worked oh. with John Flannel and you've opened for They Might Be Giants. I've got to ask you something light about They Might Be Giants. Absolutely. We'll, we'll, absolutely. We'll s- save that for how do, you, how do you cope? Yeah. How do I cope? I mean, uh, I mean, that's a very broad question. I mean, I have, uh, you know, I still struggle with writing. I still have the same you know, I never learn anything. It's always the same. It's always the same, which is to say, I really I have a desire to write. Um, I have a resistance to writing. I have a uh, I have a, an editor that is very harsh with me at early stages in my head. Um, and it's hard to overcome. I mean, and the only way to do it is like anything else, you have to practice it. You have to show up. You have to, for me, when I want to write, what I need to do is say, all right, every day I'm going to sit down with my guitar or at the piano and spend 20 minutes messing around. Not to make anything necessarily. Who knows what's going to happen? I just need to show up, make some noise with those instruments and see where it leads. Um, and I have to have time to do it. I have to have space and privacy to do it. And I have to give myself permission to waste, waste time, to essentially waste that time and just mess around and nothing comes of it. And only after I have done that a few times, but invariably after I have done it a few times, ideas start to come. Um, and so that's the, you know, it's a, it's a common refrain from most creative people that you just need to, you just need to show up and that the ideas will come. And it's very trite, but it's very true. And I never, never, ever learn. I, it's always so hard for me to remember that that's what I need to do. And it's that easy. You just show up and it begins to happen. What is the end point for you? When do you, st- you can't retire. <laughs> what do you die on stage? That's like for comedians, you've got to die on stage. Otherwise that's like, I mean, do you, yeah. do you are you going to have to get up and turn up every day for the rest of your life? I don't know. It's a really good question. I mean, it's a, it's a problematic thing for musicians. I mean, um, 
you know, I think uh, there's something. It's been a few musicians who have been like, yeah, I'm. I've done enough. I think I'm. And I always have such great respect for that. Phil, you know, Phil Collins at some point was like, I mean, he, I think he's he's got problems with his. Uh, with his hands and his joints, he can't really play the drums anymore. And mm. but he also was like, eh, "I think there's enough Phil Collins music in the world. I'm hanging it up." And I love, I love that. You know, uh, Billy Joel similarly is like, "Yeah, I, I think I've, I think I've written enough songs. I'm, I'm done." I, you know, frankly, he probably should have stopped a few albums earlier. If you want my opinion, but there's always that thing where you don't want to be the last guy at the party. You don't want to be. <laughs> You know, I mean, there are there are precious few examples of musicians who are late in their careers who are still producing uh, art that is relevant and or even good, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to know how it's going to end for me. I mean, I like I like to think that I will just continue uh, to kind of follow my bliss and my interests and and that, um, you know, this career will change and take many shapes before. I'm done. You know, is it always going to be me writing songs and putting them on albums and going on tour? I don't know. You know, there there may be other ways as yet undiscovered that I can I can exercise these muscles and uh, and earn earn money. I, you know, we'll see. I will try to try to stay nimble and and land this plane. <laughs> So that was Jonathan. Remember, there's 20 plus minutes, 22 or 23 minutes, almost 25 minutes. But I can't look you in the earbud and tell you it's 25 minutes. It's fractionally under that. Extra content on the cruise is Manifesto or Commerce, the book free culture and uh, keeping spaces safe for risk and play and things like that. All of that available if you're in the Insiders Club. But if you're not, you can join for a minimum £2 a month donation, but you can pay as much as you want. Everyone gets the same stuff at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Uh, go to jonathancoulton.com to find out what he's up to. I, you can hear, this is just one of those episodes where you can hear how, <laughs> you can probably hear the sound of me clapping my hands with glee on my end of the call uh, like a monkey with a pair of cymbals because I was so thrilled. So thank you, Jonathan, for your time. Uh, and thank you to you for listening and sharing this with people. If you're a new person who's found it through your love of uh, Jonathan Coulton, then there are over 375 episodes with comedians from all over the shop, uh, from New Zealand, from Malaysia, from America. Have you heard of America? They've got some comedians there. From Australia, from uh, all over the place. I do need more Europeans, I'll grant you that. I need more people from everywhere. I'm in booking mode now. I'm getting on with it. We've got Harriet Kemsley coming up next week. She's in the can already. Poor little Harriet in the can um and uh i won't name them but i've got some very exciting people coming up for you soon uh the two episodes recording this week and i'm just kind of in the zone at the moment it turns out who knew do i say this after every break i go into every break exhausted every break takes longer than it was supposed to because i'm busy resenting <laughs> having to come back to like not the interviews themselves but all of the admin and all of the other stuff that uh, that surrounds it uh, that surrounds the pod and then I feel like I've said this before probably every time. I come back and I go, oh, it turns out taking a break's really good. You come back with loads of energy, all restored and refreshed. Um, so that's all the thank yous. That's, this is the beginning of all the thank yous. Go to the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com. You can see at the bottom of that page there is a, a link to the mailing list for the Acaster thing. Um, and you end up on the mailing list, which I'm sticking to pretty well now. Every two weeks you get something fun and funny and enough people. I think it's good because enough of you email back and say, hey, this is good. Um, so 
So that's that. Thank you to Nathan Wood. This is me being a little bit ring rusty now. Forgive me. Thanks to Nathan Wood who produced, edited and uploaded the show. Thank you to Jake Crossland for the logging. Your podcast consultant remains Peter Dobbing in defiance of all evidence. And the music was by Rob Smout. And check out Rob's band Black Peaches. Um, That is that. I'm going to post Amble at you now. And if you're new, what I like to do at the end of the show is rabbit on. But you've had the content. So if you stick around, you're doing that uh, at your own behest. See you soon. Goldstein won an Emmy and on the day yesterday when he won the Emmy I wandered around my house and about every 20 minutes whatever I was doing I would stop and say out loud Brett's got an Emmy and what a testament what a tribute it is to to how lovely that man is uh, that every single comedian I know was just exploding with joy on Twitter no one was jealous no I mean that's not true we're referring to groups of comedians um, but certainly for me rarely do I see a friend of mine do exceptionally well at something without it being a knife in my heart of some sort of size. And this was just pure joy for wonderful Brett. Congratulations on your Emmy, Brett Goldstein. And congratulations to my brother as well, for whom something excellent has happened recently, um, but he doesn't listen to the show. So <laughs> congratulations him. Um, Edinburgh was amazing. If you're on the mailing list, I've given you a little rundown. Basically, it was super exciting. And I tell you what, later today, I'm going to appear on the Sitcom Geeks podcast for Dave Cohen and James Carey. And I am going to talk to them about Edinburgh. So I won't bore you with that. If you're interested in my thoughts on Edinburgh, you can uh, you can go and listen to that episode. I don't know if I've got any thoughts on Edinburgh. From my part, this is something I won't go into on their podcast. Uh, I did some street shows. <laughs> I didn't just used to be a street performer. I technically am one again, but uh, no more, I don't think. But that was a really fun exercise in hubris and going, hey, I'll just wing it, man. And, and then starting a show out of nowhere and just being so hopped up on adrenaline and going, this is incredibly difficult. <laughs> I've got nothing. I've not even made a plan. Five attempts later over the course of a really fun and funny, very relaxed weekend. I had a show and I felt I chased down what I was looking for. And it was it turned out what I was looking for was the experience of creating your own crowd, creating your own crowd. You don't get to do that as a comic. You get to you build an audience and you cultivate an audience over many years. But you don't get to stop people in the street and filter them and convince them and win them over. And it was that it was like this sort of kind of chess boxing thing whereby you you just win. I think what I wanted, I don't think it was ever about the art. <laughs> I don't think it was ever about the, the money. I think I just wanted to feel heroic. And God, it was good to feel that again. It was so fun. And now cheeky Zach Zucker is trying to get me to do some of my old street acts on stage at Stamptown, and I will not. Um, now, uh, what else will I tell you? I feel like what's been going on in my mind do you know, sometimes when I get to this stage, a good way to work out what's been going on in my mind. I've got two I've got two routes when I run out of um, uh, things off the top of my head. And let's face it, this is a very one sided conversation from my point of view and yours. Um, so it's hard sometimes you sort of think, well, I've got loads of stuff to talk about. And it's all gone. The two things I would ordinarily do are look at my most recent um, uh, notes for like writing next year's show, because that's I'll get to that in a second. I'd look at notes for writing next year's show and then I'd look at the notes I've recently made from therapy and go, what's going on in my head at the moment? Um, I have been being... I've been trying to be kinder to myself. I've been trying to spot those quicksilver thoughts where you go, oh, no, but if I relax, that's how you become a loser. And just those little... Just, because the thoughts are going like, I could just relax about this. I could just 
you know, project A or challenge B or whatever, I could just give myself uh, less of a hard time about this. And then the little quicksilver thought, oh, that's the door. It was the door. It was a toy delivery for future girl's birthday. She's about to be three. Doesn't that slap you in the face and make you feel old? She's my second child and she's nearly three. Time goes marching on, sang They Might Be Giants, and time is still marching on. Now, where were we? Um, Being kinder to yourself, trying to grab those little thoughts that are so quick when you go, maybe I need a break. And then a little thought jumps in and goes, that's what losers say. And then you have to stand behind that thought and go, no, that's what you say. And you're an idiot. And and then the little quicksilver thought jumps behind you again, behind that voice and goes, uh, no, that's calling me a loser is what losers would say. <laughs> you end up in this wrestling match. Anyway, there's been a bit of that, but um, pretty good. And this, is, I knew I wanted to talk to you about something. I um and this is this has led us there. I did a gig on Friday night, which was certainly beforehand, it seemed absolutely unplayable. It, there's a question. Is there such a thing as an unplayable gig? Sure. Anyone can stand there being ignored by everyone. Does that mean it was playable? You know, is it is it playable if you go on and have a tough time and, and it's horrible and no one wants you there and then you come off, you're like, well, at least I played it. And is there an advantage to doing that? Turned out it wasn't unplayable because two of the acts on the bill, Morgan Reese and Louise Lee, did great work in that environment in um, in two very different ways. It wasn't unplayable in the end. I got away with it. But beforehand, I was looking at this environment, which is basically the the owner of a pub is a comedy fan and impose a comedy night on the regulars of the pub because he can't get out to see comedy because he works in a pub. And um, it, the audience were, uh, I won't say disinterested. They, they seemed to be interested in sort of... There was They were sort of curious that there was this thing happening in their pub, but they didn't behave in any of the ways one might expect an audience to behave. For me, it was like doing kind of round-the-country type uh, gigs for 80 quid back in the day, like 10 or 12 years ago. And and let's, let's accept absolutely off the bat, I'm being terribly prissy. I'm very lucky and privileged and experienced enough as an act and known enough as an act on the circuit and what remains of it at the moment as it rebuilds that, uh, that I don't have to do gigs like that anymore. And they do... So the question is, obviously I'm being prissy, it wasn't unplayable, it was terrifying... And I went on and mastered it. And so that was kind of like, I, I mastered the fear, if not the room. I don't think the room, but I mastered the fear. I sat there being scared. I was on last. I got there early and I was there for two hours watching people fight and fight and fight. Um, but I was thinking, I say backstage, to the side of the stage on a chair. I was thinking, is there anything to learn from this? Is there anything to learn from this car crash of a gig beyond... Probably what I got out of it was, well, I'm going to do it, even though I'm scared. And so I kind of mastered the fear. That's positive, I guess. But is that the sort of less? Yeah, sure. You could hit yourself in the head with a stick and go, great, I'm getting better at dealing with being hit in the head with a stick. Is that actually an advantage? Um, And to an extent, one of the positive things, actually probably the most positive aspect of it is that afterwards there was not an effect on my mental health at all. I think the fear had got hold of me before going on and I was thinking... Uh, oh God, this is going to set me back two months. Do you know what I mean I'm going to be depressed about this for three days? It's uh, it's just going to be awful. And actually, what was very positive about it was, even though it was bad, I got a few laughs. I went on and kind of 
you know, try to take out the biggest, scariest guy in the room and actually won him and his friends over. But there were some drunk women at the front who just couldn't give a monkeys. And the rest of it's not like there was a single moment of focused silence for anyone throughout the entire evening, apart from when Louise did a song. <laughs> but it's a very funny song. It was an original song. Um, but uh, and they were, I think the beginning of that, they were like, oh, a song. And it kind of stunned them into silence. But regardless of the the actual, you know, the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the gig, very positive as an experience to come off stage and like an hour later and less than an hour go, oh, well, that was just that. doesn't matter. And as a privileged position, I haven't got to fight through those environments anymore. Here's the wider question. Should you be able to play any room? I remember Sarah Millican saying that on this podcast years ago. I want to be able to play every room, any room. But I'm pretty sure what she meant was she wanted to be able to do what she wanted in any room. Like, it, it, I don't think it counts as playing a room if you have to do a handstand in order to win them over, right? In order to be able to play any room, you need stuff, which is so... And Sarah, I'm sure, can do this. Um, I think it's hard to imagine. I was thinking afterwards because of it. Sarah's always in my head as having said, I want to be able to play every room. And I do think now, because she's so famous, everyone in the country knows her. It's not a level playing field anymore. But I would love to know whether pre-fame Sarah Millican could have smashed that room. I'm sure that she could have. She's incredible at stuff like that. But I was looking beforehand. I was thinking, what are my options here? One of my emergency panicky options is to try to revert to my dirty stuff. I like dirty stuff will win them over. They like a bit of sex stuff. Uh, they'll like a bit of, I mean, maybe whatever. You know, like if I had a story about sex, drugs and violence, I'm like, oh, I should open with that. I don't really have stuff on sex anymore. I haven't for about five, six, seven, eight years. And it used to be my punchiest club stuff, but I dropped it for a reason. I sort of felt like, no, that isn't what I want to do. I feel like there's um, there's a slider, isn't there? On one end of the slider is rolling over and pandering to them and giving them exactly what they want. And then the other end of the slider is stubbornly banging on doing your stuff they don't care about in the face of overwhelming disinterest. And you've got to decide where you want to be on that slider. Now, if I had wanted to go on and do loads of my old dirty stuff, and if I mean, I, I could, I, it's not like I've got it at my fingertips. I was scrabbling around on my Simple Note app going, oh, that's the script for that bit. Yeah, I could do that. I half remember that. That could be fine. But then I was like, what am I doing? Why am I trying to win them over? That would be, for me, and only for me, that would be a net loss. I might win the gig, but it's a net loss. Got to fall back on stuff I don't want to do anymore. So I had to decide what will constitute a net gain how how is this winnable and i thought the only way to win it is to walk on do the stuff that i want to do but try to frame it and try to kind of boss the room win the room over and frame it such that they want to hear my musings on the refractive nature of time and some stuff about my kid being into lego batman as his personality develops <laughs> and of course I did not win. But I did put a thing on Twitter beforehand saying, hey, everyone, uh, hey, comics, last minute, um, uh, last minute tips for an unplayable room to just kind of, you know, I need I need I, I had already thought to myself, get over yourself and try and find some joy. Um, anything else along those lines? And I got some fantastic answers. Thank you to everyone who replied to that. Um, and uh, thank you as well to Philippa Perry, who replied to that, um, who I think is from a different playground to me, but uh, gave me some lovely advice about sort of, I think it was brilliant public speaking advice that was maybe less applicable to doing stand-up in an incredibly rough pub. But it, absolutely, the, the kernel of it was there. And as a result, we... Um, She's might, she might be coming on the podcast. We had an interesting exchange on Twitter and um, I think she's got a bit of free time in October. And we'll get Philippa Perry over here for a non-com pod. That'd be wonderful. Um, ultimately, 
I think the winning piece of advice was Charlie Baker, friend of the show, friend of mine. Charlie Baker just sent a, a two-word tweet. Do new. <laughs> Do new stuff. That would have been winnable. If I'd walked on and done my new bit that I'm super excited about, about how you feel when you stare at the ocean, and it had worked, it wouldn't have gone any worse than the stuff I did. And had it worked, had it have worked, it could have got me somewhere. But... I mean, I say that with my tongue in my cheek, really, because I was being paid and my job is there to to do my best. I just think that that would have been... Again, it's a slider, isn't it? There's you're being paid, you must do your best. And on the other end of the slider is my show is whatever comes out of my mouth. My show is whatever I say. So where do you put yourself on that slider? But the biggest issue for me is that I didn't have a great big wobble about it. The adrenaline left me pretty soon afterwards. The bad feeling afterwards was almost non-existent. I did fine, Um Morgan Reese and Louise Lee are banger, bankable newer acts. And uh, my hat is off to them. Um, and uh, I, uh, it, it's all over now. <laughs> it's all over now. And so when it comes to the uh, the resilience stuff, which I'm uh, talking to businesses about, as you know, I go on about it a lot here. You go to stuartgoldsmith.com to find out more about it. I came away feeling like I must be taking my own advice because I felt fine about it almost immediately. Speak to you next time. Oh, it's good to be back. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.